taking back the outer walls from a sin that's pinning you down, I'm not saying that it's just it's just simple, it's just easy. Right? But the reason you're failing at it is because you're doing it on your own. See, God's grace is that since he rules from the keep, he'll give you what you need to take back the rest of the castle. Reach College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gaff. All right, so last week, last week, Romans chapter 5, we talked about, Paul talks about the old Adam versus the new Adam, right? He's talking about the fact that uh, this old Adam, the actual literal Adam, right? He, by his actions, he took us all into sin and condemnation, but new Adam, Jesus Christ, he fixes this and he's he compares and contrasts these actions he says okay you know here's how they're they're similar here's how their one action did something for everybody and here's how they're different here's how the one action on you know old adam's part led to condemnation and and death and here's how the one action by jesus uh allows us to have access to grace and be saved right so that that portion is largely a talk on justification, right? So justification is being made right with God. That's that's the moment that God declares you righteous, changes your status, brings you in. So he's saying, are you are you bound to old Adam and the condemnation that he that he brings? Or are you bound to new Adam, to Jesus Christ and the justification that he brings? Right? And so it's very uh that that's a justification look. And then there's a shift in the first part of chapter 6 into sanctification, into uh, this continual growing, right? So we know that when we are justified, that's the beginning of this process, and that we then, the rest of our lives, we grow in Christ-likeness. We begin to be sanctified our whole life. And I've told you guys this before, but the, the experiential difference between justification and sanctification is should, should almost be zero, right? Because the act of being justified and the act of being sanctified is receiving grace. It's God entering into your life with grace and changing you. Now, whether that's the very first time that made you right with God or every time after that that makes you more like God, more like Christ, uh, experientially it it's, it should feel the same, right? And, and almost you could say, depending on when you got saved and how your getting saved experience went, your sanctification could even be more pronounced throughout your life. Um, some of us, uh, the, those of you who grew up in church, especially if you came to know the Lord at a very young age, there's probably a sanctification experience later in life that was way more pronounced. That's the way it was for me. Um, and a lot of times there's even a confusion over like... <coughs> Did I just get saved or was I already saved? Because it's, it's the most real experience you have of it. And ultimately, the Bible doesn't tell us um, to look for when we got saved. That's not the point. The point is, are we saved? Right. And so today, as we look at sanctification, the question that that is going to be um, asked is, have you been 
made new? Have you been made into a new creation? Are you taking part in what it means to be more and more like Christ? It says, uh, Paul's going to say that you have to be joined to Christ in his death. And if you're joined to Christ in his death, you will also be joined to him in the newness of life. That's the phrase we're going to see today, the newness of life. Um, how many of you have read the Harry Potter books? How many of you have seen the Harry Potter movies? Okay. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a spoiler, but I looked it up last night, and the last movie came out in 2011. So if you're upset about the spoiler, it's kind of your fault. So in, uh, in the Harry Potter movies... The bad guy, who uh, shall not be named, uh, you know who, uh, he, he has figured out that he can attach parts of his soul to certain objects, and that if he were to die, that then he, he'll live through these objects. He can basically be brought back through these objects. And one of these objects ends up being the main character. right? So Harry Potter uh, has a piece of... Uh, the main bad guy attached to himself, right? And uh, the way that they have to detach these pieces of the bad guy from, from these objects is by destroying them, right? And so what happens is that Harry Potter has to be killed. He has to be destroyed to unbind him from the bad guy. So the idea is that the death is actually what what finishes it, what separates them, what uh, completes that contract or that transaction. So the same thing is true of you and sin. See, when you die, you are paying for your sin. You're, you're finishing the contract. You're completing the transaction when you die. The problem is that you owe infinitely for that sin, so you have to stay dead to keep paying for it. But see, because Christ didn't owe infinitely for sin, when he died, he was able to complete the payment. He was able to finish the payment for sin, break the contract, finish the transaction, and then he could return, he could come back to life. So the question is, how do we get joined to Christ in his death so that we can take part in the completed payment so that we don't have to infinitely pay the transaction for our sin. So Paul, uh, he, he's mentioned moving into this chapter a couple times, this idea, uh, at least once he says that where sin, where sin, uh, the magnitude of sin is seen, we see that grace abounds. Right, and he's going to address a couple times this, like this uh, slanderous idea that's being made. So people are putting words in his mouth, and they're saying, "Oh, well, if where I see sin, I then see greater grace, then that means I should sin more because I'll see more grace. It'll get bigger." They think they're increasing God's glory by acting in sin, right? And uh, what I told you guys last week is that essentially seeing the reality of how big your sin is, it causes you to then see the reality of how big grace has to be. But it's an optical illusion that you're not actually making grace bigger. You're only realizing how big it is 
because you can't see the infinite ends of grace, but you can see the magnitude of your sin, which makes you realize how much grace you need, right? So it's a realization of the depth of your sin and therefore the even bigger amount of grace. It's not that the more sin I add to the, to the stockpile, the more grace there will be. You're not producing that grace. That grace is infinitely covering all of your sin. So Paul is saying, we're not saying, well, now let's just go sin more, right? So he's going to start there. That's where he's going to begin chapter 6 and kind of deal with that issue first. So if you look with me, Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What then, I'm sorry, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Far from it. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? All right, so he says, listen, this is just this is just a weak excuse to keep sinning. It's just a weak excuse to not have to follow Jesus, not have to do anything in your life to be with him. Uh, the way I'll, I'll, I'll compare it for you is this idea. It's as though you've been pulled out of the burning building and you've chosen instead to sit in the lobby while the building burns down. It's saying, well, you know, it'll make the saving greater if I stay in here longer, if I choke on a little bit more smoke and, and watch the ceiling fall down around me. But here's the reality. While you're in the room, you're still not saved, right? You're living in danger. You're not living in freedom and in, and in being saved from that danger, right? So, You can't be saved and then go back into peril. So he he has this phrase in here. He says, died to sin. Died to sin. And it's different than the phrase we see a lot in the Bible, which is dead in sin. So the difference is that dead to be dead in sin is to be unable to be right with God. Unable to love God. See, we talk about sin is hating God. Well, being dead in sin is being stuck in that rebellion, in that hatred. But being dead to sin is this this idea of dying that finishes the debt, that finishes the transaction, that frees you from sin, right? It's, It's Harry Potter dying and therefore finishing the connection he has with the bad guy. It's completed in his death. So our death completes... Our transaction with sin, infinitely. That's the dilemma. How do we complete the transaction with sin through Jesus so that it's actually done, so that we can actually be out of it? And then in verse 3, he starts talking about baptism. Now, the phrase in my Bible, it doesn't say, it doesn't say the phrase like this. It should actually be baptized in connection to Christ or baptized in connection to his death, right? Because what it's saying is when you are baptized into, in the connection of Jesus, into what he has done, you're baptized in connection with his death. You are dying with him through baptism. Now, why baptism? This is, this is where it gets tricky. There's whole denominations that will tell you that baptism uh, is a saving action, right? But now we're back to works-based salvation. We've, we've got some way to earn it. What happens to the guy, you know, one of the criminals that was on the cross with Jesus, who Jesus clearly said, you're going to, you're going to make it. And 
didn't have time to get baptized before he died, right? There's a problem with this idea that baptism saves us, right? So why baptism? Baptism represents an actual act of following God, an actual act of believing that God has saved you, not just an intellectual understanding of it. Not just, well, yeah, you know, I, I, I agree that Jesus is the one true God and saves me. Well, if he has, if you believe that, you'll act on it. There will be something to show for it. Something I want you to see here is that this is the vehicle. Baptism is the vehicle for discussing the act of following God. That's what a lot of times in the Bible, they're using baptism as a representative action, as the first action to show that you are actively choosing to follow God. It makes a lot more sense when you realize that here in the Bible Belt, getting baptized is kind of a um, just a matter of church attendance, maybe praying a, a specific prayer at some point that somebody led you through, whereas baptism back then could get you killed. Baptism all over the world and throughout human history has been such a public declaration of faith in the one true God that it could actually get your life taken. People who are getting baptized right now in the Middle East are losing their families, right? They're becoming outcasts. They're having to run away and hide. So baptism in and of itself is not the act. It's not an act that saves you. But if you're willing to get baptized throughout most of human history and in most cultures, the willingness to get baptized can only be present if you truly believe this is the one true God and he saved you. And there are people throughout human history who have wanted to believe the truth of Jesus Christ and not been willing to suffer the consequences of baptism and of following him. And that in and of itself proves that they have not surrendered themselves to Jesus. They have not connected themselves to him in his death and therefore in his life. Look at uh, verse 4. Verse 4 is where we get the language, the, the phrase that we use when we baptize people. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. Okay, verse 4, he gives us a baptism comparison. He says, just as, just as we do this, we too will. Right, So he's, he's describing the things that we get because we're connected to Jesus in his death. Right, Baptism, again, represents that connection, that declaration that I, I'm connecting myself to Jesus. I'm following him. I trust on what he's done. And because of that, we'll be raised. So this is the key, right? Why is it so important that we believe that Jesus was resurrected and that we will be resurrected? Because otherwise... Death wins, right? And death, by the way, is not just some unconscious, ethereal blackness experience. It is separation from God. It is a horrifying reality. So to be made alive is involving that you are connected to God for eternity. So otherwise, if we're not going to be raised and connected to God through eternity, we are going to be trapped in separation from God forever. That's the only two options. It says we're raised through, right? This, this language is not accidental. Language, we're going to see a couple words, through, united, in. 
just in this passage. And what is he talking about? From chapter 1 on, Paul is saying Jesus is the gospel. Not showing you the gospel, not leading you to the gospel. He is the gospel. He is the way of being saved. Jesus said, I'm the door. You have to go through me. You have to be in me. You have to be connected to me, right? Salvation is unity with Christ. That's what it is. So he says, you're raised through, and then he says, God's glory. Okay, I want to I clarify this phrase because it's hard for us. We, we don't all often understand what Paul means when he says the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, and God's glory. Both of these things are, are essentially talking about one concept. The righteousness of God is his plan to make us right, and the glory of God is the spreading of himself that results in life for people. Both of these actions are selfless. Both of these things are about accumulating humans into relationship with him so that they can live forever. Right? So he says God's, God's glorifying of himself, God's movement of himself throughout the world to share with all people, it's this selfless act of love that saves us. It raises us into life with him forever. And then he gives us a purpose. He says you're raised through God's glory to what? To walk in. To act on. Not to know about, to understand, but to actually participate with him. To walk in, that's your sanctification, the newness of life. Now I want to hone in on that phrase. Talking about being made new today. The question I want you to be asking yourself is what's new in me because of Jesus? What's changing in me? What has changed about me because I follow Jesus? This is the subjective indicator that you actually are following Jesus because if you have been saved, it makes something new about you progressively and constantly for the rest of your life, perfected in death, you are being made into something new. And right here, right now, you get to live in something new, something, this new life. Look at verse 5. For if, we've, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For the one who has died is freed from sin. He says we're united to his death, which makes it a certainty that we will certainly be united to his life. See, if you're united to the payment that, that finished it, that finished the transaction, paid the infinite payment, then you will be united to his infinite life, his eternal life, right? So you have to be united to this death to get this life. In verse 6, he says the old self is crucified. I don't want to just glaze over that word crucified. That is being put to death. Who's putting it to death? God is. God is putting to death the old self, so that you can have a new self. In Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ, so it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. When we are crucified, when our old self is put to death in Christ, we then begin to live the new life that Christ is already living, that Christ is in right now, that he has given to us to be able to participate in. And and what was the purpose that we would be crucified? It says, so that this body of sin may be done away with. Okay, so it's a so that. So that statements are purpose statements. There's And there's two kind of right in a row here. It's so that our body of sin will be done away with, so that we will no longer be slaves, so that we'll no longer be dominated by sin, so that sin no longer has power and dominion to pin us down, to hold us in that death. Okay, let's talk real quick about this idea of slavery. The world tells us all the time that the Bible is just this list of rules and it just wants to keep you down and keeps you, it wants to keep you from living your best life, tells you all the things you can't do, just a bunch of hypocrites that believe in the Bible. Okay, let's talk about this. When you're a slave, what do you do? Whatever you are made to do, whatever you have to do. You, you don't get a choice. You do exactly what you have to do because you're a slave. You're being dominated by something. Okay, so then, then ask, ask yourself this question. If this is the thing that you're enslaved to, how come you can't do it? How come you have so much trouble keeping all the rules? What are you doing even when you don't want to? Sin. Even when you try your hardest not to, even when you do everything in your power, with all your strength, you keep sinning. Why? Because that's the thing we're enslaved to. That's the thing that's dominating us. You're not being dominated by the Bible. You can't do this on your best day. You're being dominated by the thing you can't stop doing, no matter on your best day you can't stop sinning. Right? The, the, the domination is not of the Word of God. The domination is of our sin nature. And, the, and what God is saying is, if you are, if, what Paul is saying is, if you are united to Christ in His death, you are no longer to be dominated by the sin that once held you down, pinned you into that rebellion. Verse 7 is a conclusion statement. He says, this death payment frees you from sin. And again, the problem becomes you can't die enough. Like you can't die enough to pay for your sins. But somebody died enough. They paid the price because they didn't owe infinite. They, they didn't owe at all. Jesus didn't owe at all, so his death was satisfactory. And if you're bound to his death, you'll be bound to his life. Dying with him gets you a new life and a new master. So, if you've been going to Evergreen long, you've probably heard, uh, you've probably heard our senior pastor give a uh, the same illustration on Dante's Inferno. Right? He says the, the Dante says that the lowest circle of hell is reserved for the the betrayers. Right? Satan is down there who betrayed God. Judas is down there who betrayed Jesus. Um, 
Brutus is down there who, who betrayed Julius Caesar, right? There's something we know inherently, which is that betrayal is, is the worst thing you can do to someone else, right? Because an enemy you expect to attack you, but only a friend can betray you. Only someone you trust can stab you in the back, right? So there's something we know inherently. And, and if you've ever been betrayed, you know the misery of that feeling, the agony that plagues you when you know that somebody you care about has, has intentionally hurt you, has intentionally gone behind your back. Um, it can even be small. It can even just be as simple as we, this person that we care about, that, that says they care about us, has aligned themselves or become friends with somebody who hates us and makes our life miserable and doesn't understand why that bothers us, why, why this person that's tormenting us is now friends with our somebody we, we're supposed to be able to trust, right? That betrayal, it, it stings in a way that nothing else stings, right? The worst traumas in life are not just acts against us, but acts against us by people we should have been able to trust. So the question is, how do we get this new master? How do we get, uh, um, how do we, how do we serve one master? Because we can't serve God and betray him in sin. We can't be unfaithful to him, untrustworthy to him. So the question is, what does that actually look like? What does it look like to have a new master? Look at verse eight. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Died to sin. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered, sin, suffered for sins once for all time, the just for the unjust. Why? So that he might bring us to God. Okay, Jesus suffered and died one time so that he could bring us into a new, into a relationship with a new master, with God as our master. And it says that he, he lives to God now. What does that mean? To live to God. It's the idea of living for the glory of God for God's praise, for the spreading of God's glory, right? To live to God is that my purpose is to serve my master. What is, what is your action of sin doing? It's serving the master of sin or the master of your flesh or the master of your own self-interest. So instead of spreading the gospel, praising the Lord, spending time with him, that is serving your new master. That is serving God as your master, loving him instead of hating him, instead of being in rebellion to him. And I want you to see something. Uh, Paul says that if we died, it, it, Paul sa I'm sorry, I got out of order in my notes, I just realized. I'm talking about verse 10 right now, so let's back up to verse 9. Uh, verse 8 and 9 says, if we believe we died with him, we also live. Paul, but I want you to see something. Paul's not talking about some future life. He's not saying we died right now and then someday we'll be made right in eternal life. Paul is saying, if we died, we live right now. We've already started living with him, right? 
this this chapter when I read it the first time, it's very easy. We read it like it's only talking about eternal life. So when we see it, we say, "Oh yeah, I died, so someday I can be in heaven." No, no, no. You died so you can start living right now. You have life right now. See, I'm glad I didn't skip that. Um, we live with Christ and like Christ because we know He lives. Okay, what is the significance of the resurrection? Listen, if if you if you need to talk that through with me, let's talk sometime. There's a great discussion to be had on why we know the resurrection is true, on why we know that it that it in fact did occur. And why is that so important? Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, nothing in this book matters. Nothing in this book is real. Nothing in this book can help you. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he was a liar, and he's paying for his own sins. This is only true if Jesus proved he was God and proved that he paid the penalty for sins because he rose from the dead. That's why the resurrection is so important. And it's the only way you can have hope to be resurrected yourself. Right? This is why the, the animal sacrifice in the Old Testament never did anything for us. Because every time you killed one of those animals, it was a representation that God someday was going to sacrifice the perfect sacrifice to save us. But the reality was that animal stayed dead. That animal didn't save anybody. Christ came back from the dead because death was no longer his master. It couldn't master him. Now, look at verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He died once for all time, and now he lives to God's glory. It says, so you too are dead to sin and alive in Christ, in connection with Christ, being sanctified right now, not later, not someday, not, not once you die. You're living right now. That's what happens when you receive the new master and the newness of life. Paul says, consider. He's saying, believe it and act on it. Think about it. Actually believe on it, right? Contemplate it. Not just understand it intellectually. I repeat that all the time because we live in like the, the Midwestern buckle of the Bible belt where we all have heard the gospel since we were little kids in VBS year after year after year. But if nothing in your life is new because of that, you don't have it. It hasn't set in. It has to be changing you. It has to be having an effect that subjective reality that it's changing something about you right here, right now, that you've started that new life is the only way you know that someday it will be made perfect, that it will be finished, that you're participating in it now is how you know you'll participate in it later. Your actions show belief, which shows salvation. Salvation is later. But faith that God will save me on the last day manifests in actions right now. We can't see our salvation. You, you understand that? The, the objective reality of what happens on the last day, you can't see it yet. So how do you know that it's going to happen? You have faith that's going to happen based on what's happening right now. Based on what's happening to you right this second. I want to describe this to you. 
if you want to know sometime, come sit down with me. Let's have a one-on-one conversation. You want me to describe to you who I would be without Jesus? I'll walk through it. I've seen it. I've seen what happens when I'm in charge. It is the worst version of myself. There's not like a version of me that just meditated enough and got like so centered and complete that I just self-actualized into a better human being. I was going down the drain. The only reason that I am who I am this second is because Christ is connected me to his death and given me access to a new life where I'm a new person and I act differently than I would if I was in charge. And I've seen it firsthand. The, the, the reality to me that I am saved is apparent to me every day that I don't act like that guy, that old self. And by the way, it, like it's not, it's not going to hold up if I stop putting my faith in Jesus. If tomorrow I'm like, you know what? I think I've got this covered. I don't really need the Bible or church. You watch. It would be the fastest collapse of all time. I will be right back to ground zero because I'm not sufficient. I can't fix this problem. But because I have a new master, I also have new rules. Look at verse 12. Therefore, sin is not to reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust and do not go on presenting the parts of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your body parts as instruments of righteousness for God. Okay, I want you to picture a castle. Picture a castle. Castle has like a keep in the center, right? That's fortified, main building. Um, and then it has like a wall around it with towers and stuff, like a more fortified exterior, right? So picture that castle. And then I want you to think about this. Rule happens from the keep. The king, the ruler, whoever it is, they, they're fortified in the keep. Okay, But then they fly their banners on the keep and they fly their banners on the wall outside of the keep. Here is the picture that we're seeing here. This idea of sin reigning. Sin is in the keep. It is in charge. When you get saved... God takes over management. He evicts everything inside, kicks it all out, clears out everything, even to the outer walls. The outer walls, I want you to picture as your flesh. Not your soul, but your flesh. Here's what this passage is talking about. If God is in the keep, ruling, if grace has taken residence in there, don't let the enemy reoccupy the outer walls. Okay? What happens? You are coming up on a castle. You, you're a lost person coming up on a castle and you see the Christian flag flying from the keep and from the walls. You're like, okay, something's different here. I found something. What happens now? You walk up and the keep's flying the Christian flag and the outside is flying like the swastika. You're like, something's wrong. I don't think I want to go to that castle. Looks like bad people are at least in charge of the outside. Right? This is you, you, if you are saying, I'm a Christian, God is in control of the soul, He has saved me, He's taken up residence in me, but all my actions on the outside, they represent evil things. I've presented them, I've given them up to be instruments of rebellion and instruments of unrighteousness. See, 
for the actions to flow out of that castle, the walls have to be ruled by the same person who rules the keep. The ambassador can't leave, right? The walls can't be fortified. There's civil war, right? There's two different people. There's sin trying to reign on the walls while God is reigning in the keep. Now, the reason that I describe it like that is this. If God has truly taken up residence in your life, that cannot be undone. But that castle is a useless one. It's not participating in any wars. It's not sending out any messengers. It's not spreading the message of the king. It's just stuck. What this passage is talking about is stop giving away your actions and your outside appearance and and everything that people can see from the outside. Stop giving that up to the enemy. Stop letting him reign. That's why he says, don't let him reign in parts of your body. Saying, don't give up that tower or that wall or that piece, that external part of you. Right? This entire passage, by the way, is written to Christians. He's not, he's talking about people who are saved and he's saying, okay, if you are a Christian and Christ reigns in you, then stop giving up parts of the castle. Stop letting the enemy have his way with you. My question to you is, are you obeying or stuck in a sin? Are you saying, I feel miserable about it? I know that the king reigns in my soul, but I am stuck in this sin. I'm offering up part of myself, my eyes to view something unholy, my ears to listen and be influenced by things that are unrighteous and hate God, my mouth to be used as a weapon against God's people, against people made in God's image, my hands to commit violence or evil acts, my feet to take me places where I do evil things. Am I offering up the parts of my body as instruments to rebel against God? Or am I, am I offering those same parts of my body up as instruments to spread the glory of God, to spread the gospel, to love other people? And here's like the catch of all this. Sin is not fulfilling. It's misery. You know why you hate like being stuck in that sin? Because it's a lie. It's a dominating lie that tells you if you just do this one more time, you'll feel really good about it. You'll feel really good about yourself. The reality is the only thing that brings true joy and true fulfillment is living for the glory of the Lord. And he knows that. That's why it's selfless of him to constantly be spreading his glory in himself is because he knows that's the only thing that brings us life and fulfillment and joy. It's the only way we can live that isn't miserable. And if you will get on board with that, it'll ch- it will bring you into a newness of life that you cannot fathom. Listen, Taking back the outer walls from a sin that's pinning you down, I'm not saying that it's just it's just simple, just easy. Right? But the reason you're failing at it is because you're doing it on your own. See, God's grace is that since He rules from the keep, He'll give you what you need to take back the rest of the castle. He'll give you the strength and the power to fight your way into ownership of everything. But but the question is, are, are you even fighting it? Are you going to him to fight it? Or are you just offering those things up to the enemy? 
just giving your eyes and your hands and your ears back over to the enemy to do with as he pleases. That's not the same as actually going to God and saying, God, I need your help. I need you to help me take back this this part of the castle. And and do you know what that looks like? There are many of you in this room who who have started to really catch this and figure out what this looks like. It looks like vulnerability. It looks like confession. It looks like living in the light. It looks like being real with your community around you. It looks like surrendering to God. Like, not not most of everything. I'm going to keep this one thing. Not, you know, all the bad stuff, but I'm going to still make the plans for my life because those aren't bad things. Like, it's not bad for me to want this job or this career or this spouse, right? It means surrendering all of it. Every last aspect of it. Giving all of those things up to God, trusting that whatever He has for you is going to be fulfilling, is going to bring that joy. And then admitting to, to your community and the people around you, this part of the wall is taken over by the enemy and I can't get it back. And those of you in the room who have started doing this, who have started saying, hey, I, I need help from the people around me because this part of the castle is taken over, it's been occupied for a long time and I've just been either ignoring it or hiding it. Those of you who have started admitting that are starting to see it get taken back. Starting to see real victory there. And again, not overnight. I tell you guys, it's not prayed on Friday, healed on Saturday. It's prayed on Friday and Saturday and Sunday and the next Friday and the next Friday and the next Friday and seeing the battle get won over time. But that that's not just, I'll try harder. I'll just white knuckle it a little bit more. It's actually letting God be the new master and rule the castle. Verse 13, he says, to present yourself to God for his righteousness. Spread the gospel, love others, praise God, love him. Love God, love others. It's amazing. That's literally the whole Bible. Love God and love others. You know how you love God? You love what he loves, others. You know how you love others? You tell them about God, which is loving God. The whole Bible. Literally everything from Genesis to Revelation, that's what what it's talking about. Do you want to know the secret to life? How to be fulfilled, full of joy, happy? Love God and love others. Revolve your entire life around the truth of the gospel, and it, it changes everything. It makes everything worth living. And the alternative is slavery. It's domination. It's getting pinned down by the things that tear us up and eat us from the inside out. Make us empty. Look at verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. The law has one purpose. It was to multiply how much sin you could see in your life. If you are trying to live according to all the rules, you're trying to keep something that's designed to show you that you can't do it. That doesn't even make sense. That's not healthy. You talk about beating your head against a wall? Try to keep the law. You know, and it gets more impossible when you start looking at the teaching of Jesus where he's like, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I'm telling you, if you look at somebody with hate, you're guilty. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you, if you've looked at a woman with lust, you're guilty. And you're like, oh, well, that's it for me. I've definitely violated every command. 
Like, there's no way around it. You cannot keep the law. So the question is, are you being mastered by the law or are you made new because you have access to grace? Grace, the thing that lets you resist sin, be forgiven, and be able to love God. You know why you need grace to love God? Because you can't love God, you can only love God back. Sin prevents us from loving God. But when we receive His love, we can respond to it. You are made new in life, and you get new rules. A rule of grace, not a rule of rules, not a rule of the law. You're made new in your connection to Christ's death. That is what Paul is saying in this chapter. In the first part of this chapter, he's saying, if you have been connected to Christ's death, you get a new life where you're not separated from God. Right now. Right now. If you're made new in life, you're not separated from God right now. If you have that new master, then you're not a slave to sin. You're not uh, betraying God to slavery to this sin. And if you have new rules... You're free to live in what is true joy, true contentment, true fulfillment. That is what we're seeing in chapter 6. Chapter 6 is the first time that Paul shifts to kind of the, the manifestation of the gospel. He's been showing us what the gospel is, how it works, how it saves us, how it, how it you know, the mechanism of the gospel. And then all of a sudden he says, and it looks like this when you get it. So ask yourself, is, am I being made new? For the longest time, I, I was not. I was going the opposite direction. Something in your life has got to be reacting to the gospel. has got to be responding to the gospel. Otherwise, it's not that you aren't saved. It's that you can't know. You can't be sure. That is a terror I don't want to live with. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.